Lots of British-made TV dramas are gaining an American audience thanks to great actors and writing and some really stunning scenery. That's the secret of so many of the very successful ones when they use outdoor locations. Doc Martin, Poldark, that beautiful Cornish coastline. I was there last year and they were filming, so we were able to watch. Coming up, we'll get you on location in England, including King's Cross Station in London. That's where Harry Potter fans are waiting at platform nine and three quarters. They've got a luggage cart and there are photographers there with long scarves that they throw it round your neck and so it looks like you're going through the wall. We'll start the hour with expert advice for moving to Japan. Japanese themselves believe their language is difficult, and so they praise you if you even say, like, Ohayou gozaimasu or konnichiwa. They say, wow, your Japanese is so good. <laughs> Learn how to fit in in Japan and where to find a TV fan's Britain. It's just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. For an American to figure out the unspoken rules of what's expected of you in Japan, it takes the insights of someone who's intimately acquainted with the cultural ambiguities on both sides of the Pacific. The author of Living Abroad in Japan was raised by American parents in Japan and offers her tips for both visitors and newcomers in just a minute. Plus, guides from England share their favorite scenic locations to visit that are featured in many British TV shows with a TV fan's guide to Britain. Ruthie Kanegi knows how easy it is to fall in love with Japan. She was raised by missionary parents in Hokkaido, up in the north of Japan, attended American schools in Sapporo and in Tokyo, and returned to Hokkaido and Tokyo to teach. Whether your plans for Japan are for a few days or a few years, Ruthie will help you understand how to get things done in Japan and the differences from one region of Japan to another. Her moon guidebook, called Living Abroad in Japan, has just been updated, and Ruthie joins us today to talk about living in Japan. Ruthie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. A lot of Americans either work or end up living in Japan. What is the attraction of Japan? Well, one attraction is that culture is unique and distinct from the U.S., and the history is long. Japanese history goes back at least 2,000 years, so there's many traditions religious and cultural and regional differences. It's a very safe country, low crime rate, and people are generally very friendly towards visitors, international visitors. I would think the culture is so rich and long and treasured that an American would be forever an outsider. How realistic is it to be, you know, accepted if you if you move in? You're, you're always going to be the foreigner. Yes, the best thing is to get involved in some kind of group, whether it's your neighborhood, if you're living in an apartment, become active in your neighborhood association, or if you're going to school, then join some clubs of uh, students, university or high school. Hmm. And if you're working for a company, go out, hang out with people outside of work as well as in work. And Usually when you become associated with a group, then you're accepted and okay. you're not foreign anymore. That's a very good tip. And um, I would think Americans are, are kind of um, privileged a little bit because we're so American and Japanese are fascinated by America and they want to learn English. A lot of my friends have gone to uh, Japan and, and they earn their living teaching English as a second language. Yes, it's true. Uh, many Japanese wish to be able to speak English and visit the U.S. or other countries, English-speaking countries. And as you know, Tokyo is going to host the 2020 Olympics. So there's really a, 
a high demand for interpreters, translators of English and other languages, and people want to learn English. So that is a, one good way to make contacts or friendships with Japanese. So while we're talking about that, it seems my friends who love to live in Japan and teach English don't speak Japanese. Is it realistic for somebody who doesn't speak Japanese to teach English in Japan? It's possible, but as I say in my book, you will get a much richer experience and get much more out of being living in Japan if you do learn at least certain amount of Japanese. In fact, I encourage people, if you know you're going to Japan, mm-hmm. start learning Japanese now where you are. How tough of a language is that? Well, spoken Japanese is not really that difficult. In the book, I have a phrase section in the back, mm-hmm. and I advise people to learn how to pronounce English words with a Japanese accent then you automatically have a vocabulary of thousands of words. I love that because when I was in Japan, <laughs> I used to travel in Japan a fair amount and there was English words that were just fun to say. I mean, yes. I remember McDonald's was Makudonaldo. Exactly, right. And like orange juice is orange juice. A big hamburger would be a bigumaku. Bigumaku. And <laughs> computer is computer. So <laughs> if you know how to pronounce it, you can communicate very easily. Cinderella, isn't, isn't that Cinderella? Cinderella. And uh, mm-hmm. Rush Hour. <laughs> rush Hour. Right. Rush Hour. Rush Hour. <laughs> so you, uh-huh. that's a good advice. You start with that kind of juvenile little uh, joy of mispronouncing words to be understood, and then mm-hmm. you have that as a basis. I remember when I was in Japan, just a handful of words went a long way. It certainly does. And mm-hmm. uh, I felt that people were very quick to accept the fact that I didn't speak the language anywhere near fluently, but I knew the words. Right. In fact, Japanese themselves believe their language is difficult, and so they are they praise you if you even say, like, Ohayou gozaimasu, yeah. konnichiwa. They say, wow, your Japanese is so good. Or d- doesn't muzukashi, <laughs> is that difficult? Yes. Muzukashi. I would always say, mm-hmm. you know, if I was befuddled, I would just go, muzukashi. Muzukashi. <laughs> they thought that was very impressive. One of the best phrases, I think, to learn is, onegaishimasu. That means, um, please help me, or please give me something, or please be kind to me. It means so many different things, oh, and it's, okay. it's a very nice request. Onegaishimasu. You pick stuff up because it's, it's fun, like... Instead of arigato, you can say domo arigato, and which yes. would mean ve- thank you very much. Or you could just say yes. domo. Don't just people say exactly. domo. And then you pick right. that up domo. because you're listening, and it works. Yes, it does. It's coming yeah. back to me. It's been decades since I've done this. Well, I'm impressed. Fun. You have a good <laughs> accent. Ruthie Kanegi is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She was born in Tokyo and raised in Japan by American parents who were Mennonite missionaries. She's taught English and Japanese language and culture at universities in Japan and in the U.S. Ruthie's the author of the Moon Guidebook, Living Abroad in Japan, and she also leads bike tours of Hokkaido. We have a link to her website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So Ruthie, if you're thinking about living in Japan, moving there and, and maybe uh, teaching English... You've got a lot of choices. Of course, you could live in Tokyo. That's like the New York City of Japan. Or you could live on one of the islands. What do we have? Uh, Honshu, that's the big island. Kyushu in the south. Shikoku, uh, Hokkaido up in the north. How would we weigh the pros and cons of this? If you're thinking about Tokyo, would that be a, a good place to live? Why would you live there or why would you not live there? 
Well, it really depends on your interests. And I have a page in the book where I give advice on where to live if you、mm-hmm. want to learn Japanese, or where to live if you think you only want to get by in English, or where to live if you like big cities and、mm. lots of activities, or if you like nature. And so I go through the pros and cons of different areas.、Mm. I'm sure somebody who loves living in LA or New York City would enjoy Tokyo very much. But if you live in a small town in Oregon like me and like to go、mm-hmm. hiking and biking, you might enjoy living in the mountains or in one of the smaller communities in Shikoku or Hokkaido. Yeah, that is interesting. I was just in New York City, and for me, that's the big, big metropolis. And、uh, it's sort of overwhelming, and there's so much energy. And when I think about my time in Tokyo, it's the same thing. I mean, just being in Tokyo was.、Uh, It was exhilarating and exhausting at the same time. So much、exactly. going on. Kind of、yes. sensory overload. And a lot of people thrive on that. And for other people, it's exhausting. Honshu is the, the main island where you'll find most of the population in Tokyo. What other major opportunities on Honshu might you find? Where else might you consider living? Well, you could live in the Kansai region, which is where Kyoto and Osaka Is if you like Japanese history or interested in religion, Buddhism, or Shintoism, Kyoto might be ideal. Kyoto is quite an amazing place, isn't it? And it, it、yes. feels like a sacred city or, or a religious, a spiritual capital. Is there a reason it feels that way? Well, there are over a thousand temples and shrines with a long history, and it's surrounded by hills and mountains on three sides. But it also has a modern side. If you、mm-hmm. arrive at Kyoto Station and look around, you'll see a tower called Kyoto Tower, and you'll think, where are the temples and shrines?、Hmm. But it's a fascinating city, and you can spend many days or even years living there and exploring.、Mm. It's also、yeah. a walkable city. I had a beautiful experience in a ryokan there. When you're traveling, you just got to stay in a ryokan, a traditional sort of、uh, guest house. And from there, you can get on the ferry and go across to Shikoku. And Shikoku seemed a little bit more traditional and sort of off the beaten path to me. Yes, I love Shikoku. And as you say, it's more off the beaten path. And I find, in a way, I think that's the real Japan.、Mm-hmm. Uh, small villages, it's lots of mountains. It's also famous for a sacred pilgrimage route of 88 Buddhist temples、hmm. that was established over a thousand years ago. And currently, It's very popular with even young people from Europe or America to go and walk that pilgrimage route of 88 temples. And along the way, you meet local people who will give you things, offerings, because they know that you're on a pilgrimage.、Mm. And that's truly off the beaten path. Sometimes、right. you're walking up steep mountain roads. In bamboo forest. That was one thing that I was sort of challenged by when I was in Japan to try to find a place that truly was off the beaten path because it's a, a highly developed country with a, with a dense population. But in your experience, are there ways to find places where the old fashioned lifestyle is still surviving? Yes.、Uh, one place I recommend are the islands of the inland sea、mm-hmm. between the Biggest island of Honshu and Shikoku is a protected sea that's almost like Mediterranean and、mm. it has hundreds of islands. and It's possible to bicycle across about six or eight islands that are connected with、mm. bridges all the way from Honshu to Shikoku. Fantastic bridges with separate bike lanes if you want to bicycle.、Oh, okay. um, I recommend stopping overnight on several of those villages. 
and you will find a rural lifestyle, slow pace of life, farmers, fishermen, they grow citrus, lemons, olives, and there are ferries that you can take all over. And so that would be hmm. a so very... So that's the inland sea between Shikoku and Honshu. My favorite yes. memories were going onto the ferry and... Tell me if it's still this way, but everybody would take off their shoes and you'd be on this carpet and people would be sitting around eating their sweet little oranges. <laughs> Mikan, yes. Yeah. It was so cozy on a ferry. Mm-hmm. We were stocking right. feet cozy on a ferry boat. Right. They usually have seats for those who want to be seated, but if you go in the carpeted area or sometimes even tatami, the rush yeah. uh, woven yeah. mats, yeah. yes, you do take off your shoes, which means you're at home. Yes. Because you always take your shoes off when you're at home so you can relax, you can lie down, take a nap, or chat with friends. I've never been so charmed by a public ferry as in the mm-hmm. inland sea of Japan, stocking feet cozy. In just a minute, Ruthie explains how religious pluralism works in Japan and the changing roles of women in the workplace. We'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 as we look at living abroad in Japan. A little later in the hour, guides from England tell us where we can enjoy the scenery featured on many British drama series as we explore a TV fan's guide to Britain. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Riku, Steve to Tokyo e ikitai What did that mean, David? I want to go to Tokyo with Rick Steves. Ooh, say it again. Riku, Steve to Tokyo e ikitai David Sedarus at Genki Desu Ah, Genki Desu. Oishi? Sumimasen. Anata wa Nihonjin desu What's that? Excuse me, are you Japanese? Iie, watashi wa Amerika jin desu. Demo ima, Fransu ni sundemasu. That was a good one. That means I want to go shopping. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're learning how things work in Japan with Dr. Ruthie Kanegi. She's straddled the differences between American and Japanese culture all her life and is the author of the Moon Guidebook called Living Abroad Japan. Ruthie also hosts bike tours of Hokkaido. Her website is livingabroadinjapan.com. You grew up as the child of uh, missionary parents in right. Hokkaido. I was always curious about this. It, it seemed like when you have a spiritual vacuum, people embrace pop religions that come and go. Did you have any ever think about that while you were in Japan? Well, I think the Japanese attitude towards religion is very different than in our country. That is, they're not exclusive to one religion or another. They take the best of any religion and adopt it as part of their life. It's almost just part of the culture. So, for example, babies that are born, they take them to a shrine to be dedicated. And most weddings are either Shinto or Christian because they're attracted to the idea of a Western-style wedding. Hmm. But most funerals are Buddhist because Buddhism has to do with the afterlife, whereas Shinto has to do with sacredness and the present life. Mm. And so they just, depending on the time of year or the season or the particular festival, it might be Buddhist, it might be Shinto, it Mm. might be Christian. In your book you wrote that, and I was just adding up the numbers here, you said 80% of the people identify as Shinto, 
67% identify as Buddhist. And I thought, 80% yes. plus 67, that's more than 100. <laughs> but it's right. okay because people can, can gather their religions, I guess. Yes. And so one of the difficulties, I, I guess you would say, for missionaries such as my parents were, it's very difficult to have somebody accept Christianity and then exclude the other religions. Ah, so, and as a missionary, you'd have to do, thou shalt have no other gods before me, or, or this sort of a, right. exclusive. Yes. And that would be a tough, because I remember, I had friends in Japan who, who were kind of like, sure, that sounds good, I'll, I'll embrace that. But it wasn't yes. at the exclusion of anything else. So they would take, That's right. they would take on Christianity, but, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be the only religion. Ruthie, what is Shinto? And, and I mean, I'm sure that's a complicated question, but I have a good sense of what is Buddhism and what is Hinduism and what is Islam and Christianity and Judaism. But Shinto, what is that? Yes. Literally, Shinto means the way of the gods. It's a type of animism or the belief in the sacredness of nature, a beautiful mountain or a beautiful old tree or a rock in the ocean has a sense of being sacred. And so they are gods that help you in your life. Farmers would dedicate offerings to the god that helped, god of agriculture, for example. So there are no images in Shinto, like statues or idols or anything. And it's believed by tradition that even the emperor of God has mythical origins and descended from the sun goddess who created the Japanese islands. The emperor god, do you mean the, the emperor who's considered a god? Used to be, yes, yes, but not anymore. Right Now he is a symbol of the state and then the people. But again, Japanese don't exclusively claim one religion over another. So these are just stories and myths that are passed down and Children just learn what you're supposed to do when you go to a Shinto shrine. It's kind of like it gives your society some basic parameters, some cultural ideals. It's sort of like a a classroom for ethics. Yes, you could say that. And it's the idea of sacredness, making things clean and purifying, getting rid of evil spirits. Mm -hmm. So there are many holidays that celebrate something uh, Shinto, and there's regional festivals, harvest festivals, or mm-hmm. rice planting festivals that are related to Shinto. So it's kind of blended into the daily life. I was struck by, uh, I was just confused at holiday time because I was in Japan over Christmas one year, and, and Christmas was like just a big party. Everybody was, the, the subway was filled with people with cakes, and everybody mm-hmm. was getting drunk. And then on New Year's, it yes. felt like a holy time. And I'll never forget stepping out my my door, and, and they were banging this gong, what, 108 times. Mm-hmm. On New Year's Eve, you go to the temple to uh, wash away the 108 types of sins that you may have committed. So they beat the temple bell very slowly, 108 times. And then, as soon as midnight is passed on New Year's morning, people flock to the Shinto shrine to pray for health and success and um, happy New Year and buy amulets or even something to put in your car for traffic safety and so on at the Shinto shrine. So they do both, Buddhist to get rid of the old year, Shinto for the new year. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ruthie Kanegi. Her book is the Moon Guidebook called Living Abroad Japan. And Ruthie, when we're thinking about living in Japan, what's the respect for women in public, in the workplace and so on, uh, and in the domestic world? these days, or, or just in general? 
Yes, well, I think things are changing quite a bit. The marriage rate has gone down, and so has the birth rate, because a lot of women prefer to develop their career or start their own business or go abroad to study or even go overseas to start a business. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite as traditional as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And I think people do respect women, and um, there are many opportunities in terms of employment in a large company, they often have two tracks that women can choose from. One is to go the managerial route where you're committed to working long hours for the company, going on business trips, and working just like the men are expected to. But the other track is for women who value their own free time and don't expect to have a lifelong career then they're more like secretaries or support staff, and sometimes then they quit when they get married. There used to be pressure to quit when you get married, but it's not true anymore. So, so I that's, think there that's are many been more. changing? Yes. So the mm-hmm. younger generation has, has pretty much said, we are going to demand a little more respect? I don't know if I'd put it in terms of demand respect, but they're going ahead and doing what they want to oh, that's on great. their own ah. and not, not necessarily thinking that you have to go to university and then get a job in a big company. Why not start your own company or start some kind of new service or go overseas? Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and uh, Scott is calling us from Lakemont in Georgia. Hey, Scott, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm great. Have you had an experience yourself in Japan? Yes, I lived there for about six years. Um, I lived in rural Japan most of the time, so it was much different than Ruthie's experience in Tokyo. Uh, And what was your experience like? What were you doing for your work? I was working as a teacher for the University of Maryland, Mm -hmm. um, and I taught at a military base in Iwakuni, Japan. Uh, And I lived probably about 15 clicks from the base and spent most of my time in the local economy. And then I was teaching part-time down in Tokiyama. I was teaching English to a group of pharmacists. So I would get on the train two nights a week and take this little rickety train, local train, down to Tokiyama and teach a group of about eight pharmacists for several years. And I developed a a really intimate relationship with all those people down there. And it really opened a lot of doors to have that close friendship with them. And and they were the ones that taught me all the Japanese that basically I ever learned. So you were able to break into the society as a foreigner and make real friendships with the locals. I did, and and it was amazing. There was two things that I did. One of them was learn Japanese, which uh, Ruthie alluded to, which opens a lot of doors. People are really, really friendly once you at least make an effort. Mm -hmm. And the other one was I tackled the transportation problem. I didn't really want to buy a car because it's very expensive to buy a car, very hard. So I bought an extremely small motorcycle, a little 50cc motorcycle, But the maximum speed limit in Japan is about 35 miles an hour. Hmm. So every weekend I would take off with another friend, and we would go exploring someplace. And we would get sometimes totally lost. And Scott, in your your years of uh, living in Japan, what was your favorite eating experience? What sort of street food did you like? There's food that's called ebi odori, and probably Ruthie knows what that is. It's called dancing shrimp. And the theory behind sashimi or sushi is the fresher the better. Uh-huh. And a Japanese friend <laughs> took me into this place. You may, do you know what it is? No, but it sounds frighteningly fresh. <laughs> uh, well, you're sitting in front of an aquarium, and there are shrimp swimming around in the aquarium. 
and uh, my friend says, okay, this is this going to be it. This is as good as it gets. So the chef pulls a uh, shrimp out of the aquarium and, and fillets it, cuts it, pops it on a plate, and it's still wiggling. And my friend stabs it with his hashi or his chopsticks and plops it in his mouth, and it's still wiggling as he eats it. And he says, it doesn't get any fresher than that. And while I'm watching him eat his, there's one that lands on my plate, and it's still twitching. And, you know, I just didn't have the heart. I couldn't eat it. <laughs> I, I had to wait till it was not moving anymore, and then then I ate it. So oh. that, that was probably the most unique experience. So it was still pretty fresh. Very fresh. All right. Scott, thanks for your call. That's a that's a, a memory I'm going to have a hard time forgetting. <laughs> called Ebi Odori, Dancing Shrimp. Ebi Odori. Ebi yeah. Odori. Dancing okay. Shrimp. Okay, arigato. Uh, doitasamaste. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ruthie Kanegi. Her book is Living Abroad, Japan. And Sonia's calling in from Niagara Falls. Yes. Hello, you two. Ohio gozaima. Ohio gozaimasu. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I was happened to be fortunate enough to be able to go to Japan because my daughter worked in Japan as a model. And so I went and I stayed with her in her flat there. And she was there for a couple of years. So I stayed for a couple of months, and I got a really good look at everything. We were based in Kobe, and then we traveled to Osaka by the terrain, and we went to Kyoto. We spent days in Kyoto. I went with her and her three American young models, uh, the group of them, and we did some really interesting dining at places that we had no idea what we were the only thing we could recognize on the menu was sukiyaki, hmm. and it was not anything like we had ever experienced sukiyaki before. We asked for dessert. The only thing that she said was mandolin. Mandolin, that's all they had was mandolin, which is a mandarin. Hmm. So we decided we'd take it. Well, we laughed our heads off because they brought it on a plate, and it was one mandarin orange. Like, that's all it was. Hmm. <laughs> but I found the women there were very helpful uh, towards other women. I had a skirt on that had my slip was a little longer than the skirt because it was supposed to be that way. And I had one of them come up to me in the store and kind of very gently touch my my hand and tell me that my slip was showing, mm. which I thought was kind of cute. <laughs> that is cute. Um, yeah. And then we traveled. We wanted to go to Nijo Castle as an example, and we couldn't read the street signs, and the map was of no use to us. So what we did is as we went along, we kept asking people, Nijo, so they would tell us, point the way, and then make a, a move that we were going to go left or right. So we'd get that far, and then we'd ask somebody else, and we did that all the way along. Never had any problems. Everybody was more than willing to help us, even though they couldn't understand us and we couldn't understand them. Mm. Sounds like you had a good time. Thanks for your call, Sonia. Okay, bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Ruthie Kanegi. Her book is Living Abroad, Japan. Ruthie, you can tell I've got an interest in uh, Japanese eating. I think I've enjoyed eating in Japan better than any place I've been on this planet. And it's just fun. I'm not saying it's the finest cuisine. I'm just saying every meal was an adventure. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I, even going on the, the bullet train, the Shinkansen, I remember the, what's the little boxed breakfast called, the Ekibento? Bento, yes, Ekiben, Ekibento. And it's just this delightful little creation of, I used to make balsa wood airplanes, and it was just like a balsa wood 
compartmentalized wonderland of delightful morsels you can enjoy with your chopsticks. And yes. you're sitting on this futuristic, you know, bullet train, enjoying your, your boxed lunch and surrounded by all the wonders of Japan. And you just go, life is good. What, yes. what is your favorite eating experience in Japan? Well, I do enjoy buying the bentos at train stations to eat on the train. Or if you don't have time, the lady with the cart comes through the oh, yeah. the train cars yeah. to sell things so yeah. you can get hot, hot coffee or ice cream. They take convenience bento. seriously, I think. You know, there's yes. a lot of convenience in their eating. I, I think you'll never go hungry if you <laughs> visit Japan because there's food available uh, many places. I would say one of my favorites is going to an izakaya, which is uh, like a pub where you order small dishes like tapas almost and grilled fish or nice. um, vegetables, things like that. Then you have a drink and you usually go with a group of friends. Oh, so yeah. that's, it's very social. I always say be a cultural chameleon. You know, you just got to physically morph to the culture you're in. Mm-hmm. And one great thing about uh, Japan, I got to say, I, I never feel like a sake here in, in the United States, but when I'm in a, in a hotel in Japan, there's usually a sake machine down the hall and it's it's heated sake, isn't it? Right, sake and beer, sometimes even whiskey so is hot sold sake. in vending machines. Out of the mm-hmm. machine. And it just, it's a nice way to cap a day. This has been so much fun talking, uh, Ruthie, about Japan. And uh, if you could just, your, your book is about living abroad in Japan. Let's just yes. close with a, an idea about how you might change if you choose to live in Japan. If you're a foreigner in Japan, you might notice that Japanese people are more modest and reserved in public. They don't usually talk loudly. They also notice the needs of other people. So if you're on the train or walking down the street and you need help, as you mentioned already, Rick, somebody will stop and help you. I think even my body language changes when I go to Japan. That is, Hmm. I'm not flailing my arms and hands around so much and speaking in a loud voice. Um, You kind of pay attention to people around you and, and not exactly copy them but oh, but you respect uh, it you pick it uh, up. yes respect and and children are trained that way at home and in, in kindergarten you know there's something about japan that is contagious uh, in a beautiful way and it mm-hmm. almost sounds cartoonish but i found when i was in japan i would start you know people kind of bow uh, just, just bow a little bit as and you almost yes you almost turn around and you back out of the room with little bows and it, it's not a caricature. It's just a respectful mannerism. And you you find yourself enjoying taking off your shoes when you come in and and saying all the nice words and and bowing a lot and clasping your hands politely together. And it's just a contagious beauty of Japanese culture. One thing I really miss when I come back to the States is when you go into a store, restaurant, bank, or post office, there's no greeting. But in Japan, anytime you walk into a bank or post office or store, they welcome you in unison. Irashaimase, welcome. And when you leave, they all say, Arigato gozaimashita. And when you get used to that, and then you come home to the U.S. and you go in the post office or bank or store, nobody says that, and I kind of miss that. And it's more than just one person. It's sort of an almost an organized the chorus. The entire exactly. work staff yes. gathers together, so, and you almost feel like you're in a musical. Right. So they notice every customer that comes through the door, whether you're washing dishes or Mm -hmm. serving food or cooking, 
you have one eye, one ear almost on the front door. And so when a customer comes in, you automatically, everyone just says, irashaimase, and make, make mm. you feel welcome. Well, Ruthie Kanegi, I guess I, I just got to say, domo arigato for your book, Living Abroad in Japan. Doitashimashite. Thank you. Up next, it's a guide to the sweeping coastlines and stately homes, as seen on British TV, and so popular here in the USA. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. TV viewers in the U.S. have long enjoyed many British-produced dramas, mysteries, and comedies, and more are on the way. They've taken us to a seaside B&B from hell in Faulty Towers, shown us small-town Cornwall on Doc Martin. Working-class struggles on Coronation Street, changes in society on Downton Abbey, and even a peek into the palace with series like Elizabeth and The Crown. And even though most of the series are fictional, many use real-life places as backdrops and settings, places that fans can actually visit and even feel a little like a character in the show. British tour guides Roy Nichols and Gillian Chadwick join us now to recommend places you can see in person that perhaps you've already seen in your living room on British TV shows. Roy and Gillian, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you live this. You watch it on TV before we ever get it, and it's just in your backyard. You can hop on a train and get there in a couple of hours. When you think about all of the wonderful dimensions of Britain and England in particular that are shared on television, especially these days, uh, what comes to mind? If you're a traveler going to England, what should you know about and, and, and what might you want to see? Well, there's so many places that are included in these TV shows. Um, there's lots of information on the internet. If you've got a particular interest in a particular series, you can often chase up um, the information on the internet to find where they're being filmed. You're a tour guide. Let's say somebody has 10 days and they hire you to yeah. show you around England and just to see the greatest uh, places made famous by, you know, Downton Abbey or whatever. Downton Abbey was filmed at Highclere Castle, uh, which is frequently open to the public, although since Downton Abbey, it's often booked up two or three years in advance. So there's loads of these places. So that could be a disappointment. It's that you want to go, to, you think you can go to Highclere Castle and it's actually not possible to get it's in. It's very difficult to get a booking there. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're a Doc Martin fan? Oh, that's easy. That's You just drive to Port Isaac. And down in Cornwall in the southwest of England. Yeah. And you can and clamor there with all the other crowds to see the schoolhouse and the doctor's house exactly, and so on. Exactly, and the pharmacy or the chemist as we call it. Be prepared to pay to park and walk quite a long ways to get into the town. It's not that bad. It's, it's yeah. harder I was there, going it was really up. crowded. Yeah. Yes. It's a lot of people there, and people are just thrilled to go there. Yeah, I was there last year, and they were filming, so we were able to watch... So how do they organize that with with the filming going on? They just keep everyone back and make sure that you don't get in the way. Basically, I was just filming where they were where they did pole dark. Oh, (laughs) and it was was so exciting! I love pole dark. (laughs) It was so beautiful and. I don't have quite the stage presence that uh, Poldark does. He's so gorgeous. <laughs> He's isn't gorgeous, oh. i got to say. i got to say. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roy Nichols and Gillian Chadwick about TV spots in Britain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jory's calling from Raleigh in North Carolina. Jory, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hey, Jory. Are you a fan of any of the shows in England? I'm a fan of a lot of them. I like... The IT crowd, Catastrophe, that Mitchell and Webb look, and lots of comedies, but then I also like the PBS uh, masterpiece shows. So I've watched all three seasons of Poldark, and when I was in England leading a tour in London in April of 2015, I was able to go to a panel discussion where I got to be and meet people from the show. Oh, I'm jealous. 
actually from Poldark, huh? Mm. Yes, not oh. Poldark himself, oh. but other yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been fun if, if you liked the show. It's such a beautifully shot series. Yeah. Mm. And then to go there in Cornwall, you can see how it could be done. It's yeah. just so Definitely. beautiful. But do you not think that's the secret of so many of the very successful ones when they use outdoor locations? Doc Martin, Poldark, that beautiful Cornish coastline. Mm. You get things like Midsummer Murders. They use all this beautiful, quaint little countryside with the villages and things well, like that. Didn't James Harriet kind of oh, yeah. establish that whole thing? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. 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 yeah, so that is a beautiful thing because in England, it's, I mean, the countryside can be so darn charming. Mm-hmm. It's just begging for a, you know, a, yeah. a crew to come yeah. and capture it. Yes. And London as well, of course, is... So what's a good example of, uh, of some shooting on location in London? A lot of Harry Potter locations. Okay, so you're on the Harry Potter trail. Let's say you're traveling with your kids and they're really into Harry Potter. What are you going to be sure to see? Well, you take them to, obviously, King's Cross to Platform 9 and 3 quarters. What do you find there? You see uh, Platform 9 and 3 quarters and... You're obviously not a Harry Potter fan. I don't know anything about <laughs> That's where he gets the train. He goes through the wall with a luggage okay. cart... And he gets onto the train that goes to Hogwarts. Okay. Yes, it's a magical platform that yeah. doesn't exist on the normal train station. So you go there and you just kind of go straight through the wall. Yeah. Straight well, they've got a luggage cart and there are photographers there with long scarves that they throw it round your neck. And so that it looks like you're going through the wall. All of these sites, I mean, if, you go to, if you're a Doctor Who fan, for instance, it was all filmed in South Wales in Cardiff. And there's a whole sort of tourist um, business based on the locations used in Doctor Who. Yeah. Much of it filmed on the quayside. And wherever you go, they really do, they are very aware of the value of these locations. So they do cash in on that from a tourism point oh, of view. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Isn't there a big Doctor Who thing in Cardiff? Because I was on the, the, in the new harbour in Cardiff and it was and like everybody was there for Doctor Who. That's right. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll recognise those, those places. I was at um, the big uh, college in Oxford. Christchurch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody's looking around for Harry Potter stuff. That's right. Yeah. They understand that when the tourists come. And, and they mm, say they frequently like use same shots. Gillian and I were talking earlier on. If you're a Vicar Dibley fan, now I know it's rather quite a few years since it was shown, but it's still shown on TV even in Britain. Right. And it's filmed at a little village called Turville in the Chiltern Hills. And I've found out from a little bit of detective work that they've actually used that village in loads of different um, films, episodes of different series, uh, going back to the 1940s when it was used in a 1943 wartime film. That is so much fun if you know the show and then you go back and you... And you can do this detective work to find out where it's all filmed. There's a little little harbour in Cornwall where they found the... uh, where the pilchards were running. Mausel. Just beyond Mausel, there's a little uh, rum runner's kind of uh, cove. Oh, oh, right, yeah. And uh, they have this little series of stones across the river... And I just kind of pranced across those stones to get across the river. And then I see it in Poldark. And it really is kind of fun Mm, to do that. And you have that opportunity all over Britain. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, tour guides Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. And we're talking about how you can include a little bit of your TV fandom in your travel itinerary, visiting places that you'll see on British TV. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Elizabeth from Media, Pennsylvania. Thanks for your call. Yeah, sorry to hear you're not a Harry Potter fan. Uh, someday I will be, but right now I'm, <laughs> I've got other fish to fry. How's it, what is your sure. favorite uh, memory of being a, a, a fan of British uh, television or movies and then traveling? Sure. So recently I binge-watched um, Shetland, and I was really curious to see, you know, it seems like it's such a remote island. 
you know, how do you get to it? Is it worth going to? It seems like it's a small island, but beautiful. You know, what are the insights for a tourist to consider? So Shetland, there's a, a murder mystery uh, about called Shetland. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it, it's, that's right. And the island doesn't seem big enough to have enough people to murder. <laughs> well, it used to have a lot, but they're all dead now. <laughs> but this, this is true of all of those. You can get to uh, these places quite easily. Shetland is served by flights and ferries going from the mainland and everything else. But that's always the dichotomy of all of these. A country like Britain that has such a low murder rate, if you were to watch Midsummer Murders, Agatha Christie, all of these, you'd wonder that we don't have the highest murder rate in the world. So you just watch it on TV and you don't need to do it in real life. That's right. Maybe we should have a few more such shows. It's a safety valve. But Shetland is well worth going because you might want to go there because of the TV series, Mm -hmm. but there's so much to see there anyway. So you you would combine it. And you make a good point. They seem like a long ways away, but there's little um, puddle jumper airplanes that get you there in a snap. I I just went to the Orkneys in north of Scotland and it was so easy. I I just decided to give myself 48 hours out of my itinerary. I flew in and flew out and had a great time. Elizabeth, did you have any other comments or, or suggestions? Yeah, I did want to know where would be a good base to visit Shetland from? Well, in truth, you'd have to stay on Shetland because um, although the connections are relatively frequent, to see the sights of the island, you'd really need to base yourself on the island. But as, as we were both saying, as we were all saying, um, you could fly in, have a couple of days there, see as many of the sites as you want to. The local tourist information is going to be very aware of where all the, if there's a particular episode, a scene in a particular episode you want mm. to see, the local tourist information will be able to point you. Because the, the locals capitalise And on there'll be all local that. guides that'll take you to all these sites and things. But stay on the island for a day or two and sort of binge out on, on, on all the various locations. Thanks for your call, oh, Elizabeth. Wonderful. Amanda's calling in Chicago. Amanda, thanks for your call. How are you all? We're doing great. What, what uh, British TV do you like to watch, and where would you like to visit? So I watch a whole slew of things, but there was a specific um, spring when a friend of mine was going through a difficult breakup, and like any pair of self-respecting women in our 30s, we decided to medicate by watching a lot of British TV, <laughs> including Mr. Selfridge and Grantchester. And oh. while we were watching Selfridge one day, we were like, wouldn't it be great if we did a girl's trip to London and have tea and drink champagne and selfridges. And four months later, we did just that. Excellent. And how did that turn out? Were you glad you did? It was so much fun. I mean, the for that show, it wasn't filmed in the store, but just getting to be there and kind of have the essence of it. And then throughout the rest of our trip, we didn't do all TV all the time, but we peppered in a few TV things to get us to different areas. So, you know... With Grantchester, we decided to do a day trip to Cambridge, and though we didn't find James Norton, it was still a wonderful day to get out of the city and see just more parts and kind of live that little nerdy TV way. And we wanted to see where Bridget Jones lives, which is not TV, but it fit with our Girls Weekend theme and ended up you know, exploring the borough market all afternoon. So we just had a yeah. lot of fun going to different places that we wouldn't have gone if a TV show didn't lead us there. And, and sort of conversely, when you watch these shows, you know a little bit more about what to look for when you finally go over there. I don't watch that much TV, but I've enjoyed Poldark and Downton Abbey and Victoria and The Crown. And these give an amazing insight into, yeah. I mean, they're not necessarily historical, but they give a, a worthwhile insight into what life was like. Mm, they do, definitely. Which, yeah. which really helps from a sightseeing point of view. Yeah. And I think one of the, the great things about British TV, when they do costume dramas, they do them well and they're accurate. 
Yeah. And they have a context, a historical context. And, you know, as tourists, we go to so many of these palaces, but we can't imagine them lived in. And then we go to some of the palaces that are still... We could see in Downton Abbey how over the years it became tougher and tougher for them to just pay the staff and, yeah. and, and fix the roof. Mm. And they had to actually, what a travesty, open it up to the unwashed public mm-hmm. for uh, for uh, admission fee so they could pay their taxes. And, and and this you, is the context that the, a lot of these shows have. They do have a very accurate historical it, context reflecting and, social changes. And you see it today, this impoverished nobility. And I just thought if Downton Abbey had carried on another 50 years, we'd be paying to see it today. And, and the old lord, the, the son of the guy who was in the show, would have patches on his tuxedo. Well, there's, there's a script to go to, isn't it? Downton Abbey 2018. Exactly. I think so. Because we we, we visit literally lords who open their castles up twice a week or, mm-hmm. or in the summer. Just to and, and it was bills. very controversial in the post-Second World War period when most of these stately homes were open to the public Yeah, or became open to sort the public. Sort of the end of an age. It was. Acknowledging that you aristocrats don't have it easy from now on. You're going to have to join That's the rest right. of us and, and make ends and, meet. And, and today there are still some who refuse to do it. They live on the edge of poverty, but they refuse to open to the, the hoi polloi. And they're still peers and lords, and they still hang out with other peers and lords. They certainly do. Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols are first-rate certified tour guides from London and Dorset. They're taking us to filming locations you can visit in the UK from some of your favorite British TV shows and movies. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Pat's calling in from Hollywood in Florida. Pat, thanks for your call. Hi, I'm Rick. I'm calling about Call the Midwife because I actually did my training in England about over 30 years ago. And when I see Call the Midwife, it just really brings me back to my training, even though it's many years before, um, because I think that was the 50s and 60s. But um, I'm planning a trip soon to England, and we're going to be in the York and Whitby area, and I would love some, um, you know, views on what I could see. I know that's the home of Dracula's in Whitby, I, I do believe, and I'm going to be in the Lincolnshire area. That's a fascinating area. Mm-hmm. I've been there with, with Roy, Whitby, States, yes, York, did, Yorkshire, yeah, yeah. James Harriet Country. What are some ideas for uh, TV well, fans? Oh, as, here? as you say, Bram Stoker set Dracula in Whitby because there's a famous scene set up in the Abbey itself. Of course, you've got James Harriet in North Allerton. And Brideshead revisited also. Castle Howard? Yeah, Castle Howard. Castle Howard is, that's a beautiful place to yeah. film. Can you imagine that? Yeah. And you know the, the famous uh, steam train in, in New York, what is it? The oh, Pickering? The, 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 uh, the, the North York Moors railway that runs I've, from Moulton to Pickering. Yeah. So tourists can get on this classic old steam yeah. train through the North York Moors. And I'm not sure, but I swear, when I look at steam trains in British productions, a lot of them must be that run. Well, they do use it a lot, but... Things like the Railway Children, for instance, the original Jenny Agatha was run on the Keithley and Worth Railway. So you have to know your trains and you have okay. to know your steam trains to identify. So there's the a number of steam trains that could take you back 100 oh, years. Dozens of them. Don't in that, England. That yeah. was used in Harry Potter, that line. That line, yeah. Because yeah. there's one station that just looks like it's right out of a film yeah. set. Yeah. You guys live in a country that is it's just like one set. giant film set. Mm. It is. It really yeah. is. It's very cool. Pat, does that give you some ideas? It sure does. Um this area of England I've never been to, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I do believe we're going to go on the, that train journey through the Yorkshire Moors where you can actually have lunch um, on it. And it's quite, I've heard that it's quite good. So yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. That's a beautiful experience. And I, I think that's kind of uh, 
that's what you got to do when you're in that area is to take yeah. that yeah. train ride. Hey, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Take care. And Heidi's calling from San Diego. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Um, over 10 years ago, in my early 20s, I read James Harriet's series, All Creatures Great and Small. They had been a favorite of my dad, so I wanted to read them. Uh, the books were incredible, and as you know, were made into the popular BBC series in the 70s and 80s. So a couple years ago, um, when we were visiting friends in Yorkshire, I took my kids to the James Harriet Museum in Thursk, and it far surpassed my expectations. Mm -hmm. um, it covered the history of veterinary medicine, talked about life in England during World War II. It talked about how the show was filmed and even had a huge room uh, dedicated to interactive exhibits for the kids. So I highly recommend it for anyone traveling, particularly with kids, so now this is, um, in Yorkshire. And, and Heidi, this is in Thirsk, T-H-I-R-S-K, yeah. Thirsk. And isn't that where James Harriet would actually come out and greet his fans once a week or something? It was like? actually his practice. He used it. His practice his veterinary. Was there, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember back when he was uh, I, sort of in everybody's, uh, on everybody's radar, people would make a pilgrimage out there, and he would graciously come out and meet his fans. Mm. Do you remember that, Roy? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what would he, he would actually, was it a certain day of the week and he would meet people? Um, I, th I don't I think, I, whenever he was down, I don't think yeah. it was a particular time. It okay. wasn't like sort of bring but on James Harriet. accessible, and people yeah. would make a pilgrimage mm. to, James, yeah. quote, James Harriet country. And, and the practice still exists today. It's moved house, of course, because that's a museum now. And I think it's his daughter who's the vet in the family now. So the James Harriet Museum, and it's actually a, a quality museum, right, Heidi? Oh, yes. It was wonderful. We spent several hours there. And then, of course, the village is also quite nice. That's great. Well, thanks for your call. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols. Hey, we've been talking about places uh, from, from our favorite shows produced in your country. Let's flip things around. Which TV shows and movies shot in the United States have inspired you English guides to want to travel here and check out on location? Oh, I know. Frasier. Frasier, Yeah, really? and then I find out it's not even filmed in Seattle. Oh. It's just got the pictures of Seattle, hasn't it? Well, that's it? not fair. I was so disappointed. Well, Frasier, I'm glad you enjoyed Frasier, Love right? Love it. Big Bang Theory. Filmed, well, it's meant to be in Pasadena, but it's actually filmed in Burbank or somewhere like that. Okay. But, um, but this is, brings us back to location filming. It's very, very important. And England Does that. sets the standard. Mm. Exactly. Thank you very much. And we, I know in public broadcasting, the whole Britcom thing, the whole British drama, the whole masterpiece, all of that is... There's even a station in Washington, D.C. dedicated a public television station. entirely British programming. Americans love it. They do. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. And it's nice to be able to enjoy that and then go to your country and mm. check it out in person. And we love showing it to them. Happy travels. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Rick narrates detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular attractions. You'll find a link to Rick's Audio Europe travel app at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here traveling with Rick Steves. Cheers, sweetie. <laughs> Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. 
To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.